Life Audio. You are listening to The Beckett Cook Show with your host, Beckett Cook. For more information about Beckett and his ministry, visit his website at beckettcook.com. To help support the podcast, visit patreon.com slash the Beckett Cook Show. Please consider subscribing to the podcast and leaving a five-star rating. Hey guys, welcome to the show. Today I have a special guest, MD Perkins, and he's written a new book called Dangerous Affirmation, The Threat of Gay Christianity. This is a very important book, and this discussion we're going to have is very, very important, and it's going to be very interesting. Uh, MD Perkins is a research fellow of Church and Culture for American Family Association. He produced the award-winning documentaries, The God Who Speaks, and In His Image, Delighting in God's Plan for Gender and Sexuality. But first, a word from our sponsor. Hi, everyone. If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up. We have legal professionals standing by to answer your questions for free. Call now and find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Call 800-497-4410. I'm here with spokesman John Wolfe. So, John, tell everyone listening who should call right now. Well, Maria, first off, thank you for having me here. It's always nice to answer the listeners' questions. Now, as far as who should call in... Anyone who's been injured in an accident and think you deserve compensation, give us a call right now. 800-497-4410. You'll find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Thanks, John. You heard it, folks. Take advantage of this opportunity and call now. 800-497-4410. Advertisement sponsored by Legal Help Center may not be available in all states. Welcome, MD Perkins. Well, thank you. Good to be with you, Beckett. So this book, Dangerous Affirmation, is uh, it's so important, as I said, and it's uh, the, I think this is going to be a very, very uh, not only interesting conversation, but uh, um, something that's going to uh, kind of surprise people. So first, before we get into it, why what drew you to this subject in, in the beginning? Yeah, so I'm I, I'm a filmmaker with American Family Association, which is a pro-family group based out of Tupelo, Mississippi. And so we've been doing a number of documentaries over the last several years. We did one called The God Who Speaks that deals with uh, the authority of Scripture. And then we worked on a project called In His Image, Delighting in God's Plan for Gender and Sexuality. And as a producer on that project, I took on a lot of additional research. And one of the topics that, that you know, the lots fell to me, so to speak, was the issue of gay Christianity and, and kind of the ways that the LGBT movement has infiltrated and impacted the Christian church and Christian thinking on this subject. So I, I initially just began to try and understand sort of the the side B revoice angle on it, because that was that was such a new and kind of confusing uh-huh. uh, thing. And then uh, as I started to compose that research and put it down and share it with some of the other leadership here at, at AFA, there was the sense that this really needed to be expanded out 
into a full book to deal with the affirming side and um, and then some of the other issues that go beyond just the side B question. And so um, so that's where dangerous affirmation, the threat of gay Christianity came from. OK, yeah. And and you you break up the book. Uh, you say that there's five ways that gay Christianity and we're going to get into the details and to the weeds of it all. But there's five ways it's impacting the church. And those are the five chapters. And number one, it's rethinking theology. Uh, Number two, rethinking the Bible. Number three, rethinking the church. And number four, rethinking identity. And finally, creating activists. Number five. Yeah. So in, in the first chapter, in rethinking theology, you talk about the three categories because there's this is confused. This can be very confusing. This, yeah. this all, all this terminology. So we need to define our term. So you talk about three categories. There's the affirming theology. Yeah. Number one, number two, there's queer theology. And number three, there's gay celibate theology. <laughs> and so to first talk about what is affirming theology. Yeah. So um, I think First of all, the the question of gay Christianity is just dealing with recon- the attempt to reconcile the Christian faith with homosexuality. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of people tend to think of affirming theology or the affirming church, you know, rainbow flags in front of the church building, welcome and affirming, that kind of stuff, when they come to this question of, of gay Christianity. But I wanted to show that I think that there's a lot more to it than that, and that's why I use the definition of reconciling or the attempt to reconcile the Christian faith with homosexuality. So to answer your your question more directly, um, the affirming church is the attempts that have been made to try and say that the Bible somehow endorses or even celebrates um, gay identity, gay uh, behavior, gay um, culture and lifestyle, and and celebrates that, and that Paul— in, in different attempts have been made. Some have tried to say that Paul didn't understand, you know, what we know now, and he of would course. have he would have been more gay affirming if he had lived in the 21st century as opposed to the first century AD, you know, or things like that. And then some some take a, a slightly more, you know, I guess I guess it's all a product of modernism, isn't it? But it's a more modernistic directly attempt to basically remove any kind of supernatural aspects from the Bible and just say that it's just a collection of human documents that reflect a certain way of thinking at that time. And then we can kind of rethink and reshape it kind of as we go. But anyway, the, the affirming church is the attempt to, um, to really present this idea that, uh, that God blesses homosexuality, that there's, there's no sin there at all. And that it's just a product of actually how God made you. You know, it's a reflection of his diversity in creation, you know, the way that he creates cats and dogs, you know, and that a, a diversity of different kinds of animals, different kinds of people, you know, so it very much essentializes homosexuality in that way. And we would call that it's a popular the popular kind of word that we would call it is revisionist theology. Yes. Mm hmm. So um, there, there are certain there are certain authors and theologians who are revisionists who are revising what the Bible actually says about homosexuality. Right, exactly. You know, they've 
And obviously, you know, to revisionist, you know, kind of has a more negative connotation to it. So a lot of the critics tend to take on that kind of language when they're talking about it. But it is a it it is a revising and the the, at least the honest scholars will even admit that this this is at variance from the way that the Christian uh, the the Christian church has historically understood this. You know, Lewis Crompton, who was a a very prominent um, uh, homosexual writer and uh, I guess historian, he kind of charted the history of homosexuality. Um, And, uh, and he, he makes the statement, you know, at, at several points in his book talking about just how, um, you know, that, that the Christian church was fundamentally opposed to this and there was no way for affirming theologians to really come in and tweak Paul's words, or if you just read it from this angle that it's actually gay affirming or anything. So there's a number of guys who even like that, you know, won't admit or or recognize rather that, uh, that the Bible is not gay affirming. Yeah. And so we go from affirming theology to number two, queer theology. And you talk about how um, there's this, and it's true, like the, just even that that title, that moniker alone, queer theology has you talk about this in the book that it has this kind of defiant, combative, transgressive tone to it. And so yeah. um, talk about what what is queer theology and what is the goal of queer theology? Yeah, so queer theology is basically the attempt to read through an LGBT lens into into a text you know if you've heard of queer reading or queering this is this is part of the academic process of of um you know doing this kind of thing where it's a it's it's intended as a transgressive reading you know where you are taking aspects of lgbt experience or language or ideas or culture or values or whatever and then bringing it into a text so you know just just today i saw somebody referring to the resurrection of Jesus as coming out, you know, and so coming out of the closet, you know, or the resurrection of Lazarus as the great coming out story from Jesus, from scripture where Jesus directly tells a, a man to come out. And so, you know, that, that then kind of read through that, that queering kind of lens then um, is supposed to elevate the the LGBT idea and experience, but also to diminish and deflect any kind of historic Christian understanding or meaning. And, you know, you mentioned the word transgression because, you know, it, it's all part of kind of a liberation theology attempt to... Um, and tell, what is liberation theology for people who don't know that? <laughs> so uh, let me just grab the definition that I had in my book here. Um it's Actually, from like not, the 70s, right? In Latin America. Yeah, it, it, it was a Latin American movement that basically wanted to see the group, wanted to see all of all of society as either oppressor or oppressed. And then the, the work of Jesus then was to move us from the category, uh, was to, to lift up the oppressed and to, um, to um, you know, elevate them and their experience, and to diminish the oppressor and to destroy the oppressor. So and it's a so, Marxist. It's a Marxist theology, really. Oh, absolutely, yeah. And you know, coming up through uh, through Marxist uh, structures in Latin America and things like that, and taken hold by certain Catholic authors in those areas and spaces at that time. Um, so, but with that same kind of mindset, you know, this liberation kind of mentality, uh, married with queer queer theory you know to to 
to give a different read on something to where, you know, like I said, like the story of. Tell, well, tell the story because this was an interesting in your book. This was I was stunned by it. Tell Talk about the Exodus 32 story uh, when uh, the incident of the golden calf and how how that how the queer reading of that story. We'll be right back after this short break. Yeah, so there's a whole collection of a number of different queer readings of different Old Testament passages, but one that was particularly shocking to me was one where this guy was talking about how when the when the Israelites were worshiping the golden calf, that was kind of their true their true worshipful moment when they could really let their hair down and and show themselves to be who they truly were, but then the law came and you know he related the people dancing around the golden calf to being like at a gay nightclub and dancing and kind of the the freedom and the exuberance of that uh mirroring the golden calf but you know so the golden calf wasn't being read negatively as you know this idolatrous worship practice but as something that was actually good and liberative mm-hmm. for the people but then the law came, you know, the Ten Commandments came down and brought judgment, kind of stopped the party. And then everybody kind of had to, you know, kind of had to toe the line now because, you know, morality was brought to play when before that everyone was able to live as their true selves in that moment, worshiping the golden calf. And so that was that was um, I mean, that's a queer reading of of the the golden calf incident. Yeah, it sounds very Rousseauian, just living in your authentic self and being, you know, uh yeah, right. So, but so, and and what? So, what is is the goal of queer theology? Just to, to kind of disrupt, dismantle, tear down, kind of like the Marxist idea, just tear down. And yeah, disrupt. I, I I think it's like introducing a lot of static and shock into the system, where conservatives don't really know what to do with it because they hear it and they're just like, that's just outlandish and crazy. And so, in one sense, they might just kind of dismiss it. Whereas other people hear it and it just sounds fascinating and interesting, you know, like a different read on a, on a classic novel or something, you know, it treats the Bible in a very literary, like it's fascinating to see, you know, the homoerotic subtext of pride and prejudice or something, you know, it kind of treats the Bible on that kind of level. So in one sense, it normalizes homosexuality. In another sense, the, the transgressive aspect of it is supposed to elevate LGBT thinking and experience by just introducing it more and more into all kinds of places where you think it wouldn't belong. And then, you know, like there's a new book out called Queering Wesley, Queering the Church. Uh, An author has written a book where she conducts a number of queer readings of of John Wesley sermons. And as a Wesleyan theologian herself is trying to um, open up possibilities for affirmation within more conservative Wesleyan spaces who would normally be opposed to um, you know, to to gay marriage and and homosexuality, but by just introducing this overall new take on Wesley, it's supposed to open up this this whole other avenue of thinking among those who, I guess, you know, are are in some kind of middle ground where they aren't really settled. But it's kind of it, it moves everything further to the left, you know. Yeah, and so okay, so we talked about affirming theology and then queer theology. Now, this is the kind of really sort of tricky one to fully understand is gay celibate theology, what which is also called side B theology. Now, if you can just tell us what what is side A, what are these sides? Side A, side B, 
Right. And what what is gay celibate theology? So side A would be exemplified by the affirming theology side, yes. you know, and side B is then this attempt to, uh, among some people who identify as theologically conservative evangelicals, not even exclusively evangelicals, but theologically conservatives, whether they're Catholics or evangelicals or, or mainline Protestants or what have you, but they um, they want to say fundamentally they would agree with the the American Psychological Association's definition of sexual orientation, that it's this innate and immutable inclination toward, you know, romantic, emotional or sexual attractions, and that that part of you cannot change. And that's just a description of your experience. And then so as a Christian, what you have to do is learn how to basically, quote unquote, steward your sexuality, which um means for some embracing um you know they talk about celibacy um as you know basically the same as chastity i've heard i've heard several other authors um who are who are opposed to side b who draw a distinction between celibacy and chastity but we'll leave that on the table as as it is for now but the claim is that they're embracing celibacy and and then some may embrace a, uh, a mixed orientation marriage is what they call it. You know, when they marry an opposite sex spouse. Um, but all of this is coming from the idea that they believe that homosexual behavior or sodomy is to some level wrong and that it's not God's design for marriage is one man and one woman. And so they see that option closed, but they they say, but I still feel a certain level of attraction, or I, I've prayed for these desires to go away. They haven't changed. And so therefore I'm fundamentally gay and it's okay for me to embrace certain aspects of the lifestyle uh, in terms of culture and movies and language and identification and effeminacy and all these kinds of things. But I just won't go all the way in, in a committed um, you know, sexual relationship with someone. So that is off limits. And the Bible only speaks, they, they claim that the Bible only speaks about homosexual action. It doesn't talk about, um, you know, desire or, or those kinds of things or orientation, which is what they're kind of building their theories from. Yeah. And uh, the, what's, what's interesting, and I always talk about this is, is, is this kind of desire to follow Jesus and to to um, be orthodox in in your theology, but then still hold on to this bizarre kind of sinful identity that right. it's almost like holding on. It's like a binky. It's like a baby wanting its binky. It's like no, I, I still need this for my own comfort, and I I'm not going to allow the Holy Spirit to sanctify this part of me. I just want, I, this is, I still want to be attached, even though, you know, when we, when we're born again, we're, we've died with Christ and we're, 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 Amen. you know, we're, cru- our, we're crucified with Christ and, and uh, we're, we we're a new creation in Christ. And so it doesn't make, it doesn't make sense, obviously to me and to you, why someone would still want to hold on to that, uh, adjective or, or moniker of gay Christian. Cause, cause a lot right. of people in, in the side B camp who do believe that there, I mean, it, it's, this is why it's so confusing and it's so insidious is they do believe that homosexual behavior is sinful, but they 
they would still call themselves gay Christians or even queer Christians, uh, which is so confusing and, and so unhealthy, unbiblical. And, uh, and so I, I don't, I don't understand why someone, I mean, maybe you can help, help us understand why someone would want to hold on to this, their, their old man and hold on to this kind of, I mean, you would never call yourself an adulterous Christian or uh, a greedy Christian or a gossiping Christian. So why, why do you think that, that they want to do this? Well, I mean, that's, that's the real question, isn't it? Like why, why the, why the attraction or the, the compulsion to hold on to that identity when it would seem to be completely opposite of who you are as a Christian, if you are a Christian, you know, like you said, I mean, if we've, if we've died with Christ, we've been raised with him. If we have the Holy spirit indwelling us that has given us new life in him, then, then we are a new creation. And so even the desire, you know, I mean, because some people will try and say, well, it's a way to, to identify my experience of temptation. And you're like, okay, but, we don't normally just add a a whole other category of identification with our temptations. You know, I mean, that's not the same thing as confessing your sin or, you know, saying that, well, I'm, you know, I often, my besetting sin is to, to be drawn in this way or to, to often go in this, in this uh, area. But, you know, I, I guess at some level it is a refusal to let go of, of that aspect of, you know, it, it comes down to the question of identity. And that's why so, so many people, when, when the Revoice Conference first happened in 2018 and drew a lot of conservative attention because of things like calling yourself a gay Christian, you know, and so at that, at that point, there wasn't a whole lot of discussion about the, the finer points of what someone might mean by that. But at the very, at the very outset, there was a recognition like, wait, this is not a good it's not good to bring those two things together and act like they're the same. You know, we don't do that with the other sins. We don't do that in the, in these other ways, but the way in which people have tended to, to so much essentialize this aspect of their identity, uh, you know, and to, to essentialize the sexual desire and the sexual, you know, um, uh, I guess proclivity or temptation or, you know, inclinations or whatever that, that, you feel like you're somehow being incomplete or not fully genuine if you don't say gay in front of Christian or same sex attracted in front of Christians. Like you have to always bring that in somehow. And that was qualify it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that, that was my question about it. It's like, why do you have to do that? Why can't you just be a Christian? Why do you have to create this whole other category um, that is unique to you and no one else can apparently speak into it because of the kind of standpoint epistemological perspective on it, you know, that so much essentializes this where any outsider can't speak into it, you know. And um, so I, I think it is this this real desire to cling to something, this this aspect of a fallen, you know, temptation. It's like you're so much identifying. I mean, think about it. I mean, if how do, how would the Bible describe orientation, quote unquote, you know, I mean, it just, we would think of it in terms of desire or temptation and, you know, people can be tempted in a lot of different ways, but that doesn't, your, your temptation shouldn't define you. It shouldn't define your, your fundamental identity and who you are as a person, but that's, that's where these guys have come from. And they start to build up a whole 
kind of theoretical substrate to to justify it. Like Nate Collins, when he's defining a- aspects of an aesthetic orientation, that basically God made him with this uh, ability to appreciate male beauty, but um, you know, but with the fall of sin you know, that's twisted to where it becomes kind of a sexual desire, whereas originally God's intention there was this kind of benign, you're you're just able to appreciate the male physical form without it being sexualized or something. You know, that's kind of how he he builds up this whole kind of, I guess, theory of beauty, you know, underneath Mm -hmm. it all. And um, and, and it's all just this theoretical kind of jarbled jargon that uh, that pulls from a lot of different, you know, forms of academic theory and things to and and ultimately begins with the the psychological state of being seeing yourself essentially in this way and then starting to build structures around it to uh, to kind of justify it and then to hold the church accountable for not creating a better space for you or being more loving in its response or you know embracing you in a in a way that you think and so it it, it continues to feed this victimhood mentality mm-hmm. and things like that too so yeah, I mean, the word space always, uh, to me, it telegraphs the idea of victimhood. But, it, <laughs> and um, and I forgot who wrote Costly Obedience. Was that uh, called? Mark Yarhouse. I mean, Yarhouse, Costly, Costly Obedience. I haven't read that book, but I, I'm assuming that it's about how, you know, a gay Christian has, it's a, it's a co- very costly to follow Jesus as a gay right. Christian. So what's 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 fascinating about that to me or what's um disturbing about it is it's costly for anyone to follow Christ. Right. <laughs> he he says that he says you know it's if before you follow me you know it's like a builder building a building make sure you can finish the building or you're going to be laughed at or count the you know, cost. That's right. Count the costs. You know it's it's costly for any human being to follow Jesus not just someone who deals with this issue or is dealing with this temptation or uh and also the idea of i tweeted this i think yesterday or the day before about sexual minority um yes i i i I can't stress this enough i am there's no such thing biblically as a sexual minority there's only sexual sin Mm -hmm. there's no such thing as sexual minority and so why, why um, talk about a little bit about what that means, sexual minority? Yeah, well, you notice that's a that's a subtle shift in the language because it's trying to create this, uh, I guess, identity group, you know, that basically says, well, anyone who isn't heterosexual is basically a sexual minority um, within that that nomenclature. But I mean, that's that's the when you start to think about it, that becomes a a pretty big bucket in which a lot of different ideas can get thrown in if you're not, um, you know, because it isn't just, um, you know, being gay or lesbian or bisexual. It would also include polyamory. It would also include, um, I mean, nobody likes to talk about pedophilia, but it would include pedophilia essentially within it. And all of these other um, kind of unique and amorphous definitions of categories that people are starting to identify as like asexual or a non-binary yeah Yeah. and uh so you know this the sexual minority category is basically you know it's is to create an essentialized group of people who have an experience that's different from the quote-unquote norm 
and it's supposed to be distinct from traditional thinking and therefore also kind of above um, critique from those outside of that group, you know, so it's kind of, of a, it's kind of a protected label where if you're in that group, then you can, you can auto critique kind of within the group. But if you're outside the group, then you are not allowed to speak into it because you share nothing of that experience. And uh, even though, you know, all you have to do is basically identify as being a part of it to be, to have entrance into it, essentially, you know, so it's a little elusive in that way. But uh, that's, that's fundamentally, I think, what the sexual minorities category is trying to get at to kind of essentialize this group, um, you know, for and a lot of it is for political purposes, but also, you know, kind of uh, to to gain access within certain, uh, certain arenas. Yeah, and I I talk about this a lot uh, on the show, but I it's like I I lived in the dark for forty two years, and I lived in you know I in as a homo homosexual man for many 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 years, and the when I got when God you know when God saved me when God had mercy and grace on me and plucked me out of you know, hundreds of thousands of gay guys in West Hollywood where I live. And he's like, no, you're going to be in my kingdom. When he did that to me, this is why I'm so passionate about this is when he, when God did that to me, it's like, I, it's like, I, I don't, I just want to go with him, whatever he says, I'm going to do. I don't care what it is. And I don't want to go back to Egypt. I don't even want to start walking in that other direction. I just, I want to flee from any kind of uh, sin, flee from sexual immorality, flee from these kind of these, these ideas, this kind of gay celibate idea or side B Christianity. I, I just want to, I don't want, I don't want to have anything to do with that old man, that old life at all. And so that's, Just personally, that's and I that's just personally how I feel about this whole thing. It's like, what what in the world would compel someone to to want to be kind of one foot in Egypt, one foot in, you know, the promised land or whatever? It's like, why just I I said this a couple of weeks on the show. It's like, just join a rotary club or a glee club. Like, why Christianity? Why? Why would you even want to be a part of following jesus when you're kind of like half in and half out that doesn't make sense to me i if i can theorize slightly on it i think part of it is when it relates to the side b stuff is that a lot of the guys who are who are part of this movement and people who who talk about this i don't think have ever really embraced the homosexual lifestyle to its fullest and so they've kind of been on the outside looking in and they see certain things that's, that look romantic and interesting and fascinating to them. And mm-hmm. and um, so there's this kind of longing to belong to this group and to be part of this. But, oh, you know, the Bible says I can't. So, you know, what else can I do, though? You know, can I can I be in a committed relationship? Because really, it's all about intimacy and friendship. It's not really about. Uh, you know, sexual behavior and all that, they would say. So then they start to kind of create this whole other aspect of of things where they start to, um, you know, where, I mean, there's some people who are talking about these covenanted friendships and things like that, where, you know, well, God, God made us for intimacy and he made us for relationships. And so now I can embrace this in this other arena 
and we'll just cut off the sex part, but we can we can still be intimate in in lots of other ways and even physically in a lot of other ways, but we just won't go all the way. You know, mm-hmm. it's almost like the youth group thing of like, how far can we go before we're in sin? Um, you know, can I can I hold hands? Can we snuggle on the couch? Can mm-hmm. we can we spoon? Can we, you know, kiss each other? Can we have oral sex? You know, how far can we go before we've really committed adultery? You right. know, and, and that's almost that that seems to me to be what is behind a lot of this is kids who grew up in conservative settings who have some affinity for the theology, whether or not they're deeply, you know, rooted in that, you know, at a spiritual level is, is for God to judge, but there's kind of on the outside looking in, wishing they could be a part of it and kind of envying and coveting that lifestyle and that full expression. But, you know, but, oh, but God says we can't do it. So I guess we'll have to create a new thing where now and and the church won't let us do this either and so now we're just getting combat from you know we're getting beat up on both sides because the affirming guys don't like us because they say that our the conservative parts of our theology are homophobic Mm -hmm. and then like the the ultra conservatives over here don't like us because they they think we're not self-hating enough so now you know we just have to to kind of find our way through this together so that's that's how i've come to understand i think some of the mentality behind it yeah that's a good that's a good read on it and and so and you talk about in the second chapter you talk about rethinking the bible that's the the title of the second chapter yeah and i've done episodes on the show about um what the bible says about homosexual practice and uh but just give us a couple because there's you know six so-called clobber passages in the bible that uh the, the, those guys would call clobber passages that specifically address homosexual behavior. Yeah. But give us a couple of examples and you kind of touched on this with Paul, but a couple of examples of reinterpreting or revising what the Bible says about homosexuality. Yeah. There's of course, you know, the clobber passages get thrown out um, and people don't want, they don't want the Bible to be mean. You know, and so they're like, well, maybe there's a nicer way to think about things. And so even even evangelicals and conservatives are able to to kind of fall into this where they they want to to, you know, well, we're never going to use the words that the Bible uses and we're never going to read those passages because they've they've been harmful or they've been used to weaponize. And um, so um, I, I think one of the passages probably I mean, obviously, the most important passage regarding homosexuality in the scriptures is Romans one. Yeah. Um, and I, I think one thing that people have missed in that when they've, when they've talked about homosexual practice, they miss that. I mean, Paul talks about dishonorable passions and, you know, so even, even this desire toward, toward this behavior is dishonorable in itself, you know, and that, that's, that is moving someone further away from, you know, from, from righteousness and where God would have you be. Um, you know, one, one of the, um, you know, the, the two, of course, there's the, the first Corinthians six, nine through 11, that has the two Greek words that um, get, gain a lot of controversy. Mm-hmm. Arsenikoitai and uh, Malakoi are, are the two words, uh, Arsenikoitai being translated uh, it, it, very often as homosexuals. Um, could, but the, the direct uh, translation is man betters or men who bet other men. And, um, uh, uh, Malakoy being translated as effeminate, 
And, mm-hmm. um, and so, you know, th- there's some debate about whether a fuller picture of effeminacy is being pictured there or just, uh, you know, an active partner in a homosexual um, sexual union and a passive partner or what have you. But the bigger picture there is the fact that God did not, um, well, one, that God saves people from who have embraced these things and mm-hmm. the other sins that are listed there, you know, such are some of you. That's the big point of first Corinthians six, nine through 11 is to, to highlight God's saving power, even in these very um, dark and, and depraved situations and identities and practices that people have embraced. Um, but, uh, you know, and, I think one thing that people need to be aware of is things like this uh, 1946 or 1947 project. I forget the year, but they're talking, they're referring to the, the, the year that the oh, right. revised standard version, <clears throat> um, you know, quote unquote, added the word homosexual into the Bible. You know, it never existed before, you know, and then <laughs> these scholars funded by conservatives, fundamentalists who just wanted to, to be mad at gay people, you know, they introduced this and then, you know, so, you know, I'm trying to address a lot of that in the book and also things like Jonathan and David and the question of eunuchs, um, because I wanted to I didn't want to just deal with the clobber passages, quote unquote. I mean, there have been several good people who've I mean, obviously, Robert Gagnon's book, yeah. um, The Bible and Homosexual Practice is kind of the the quintessential theological text on these issues. I've, yeah, I have it. I've read it twice. Yeah, uh, you know. Uh, Kevin DeYoung's book, What Does the Bible Really Say About yeah. Homosexuality, is is a great, um, you know, short, condensed... it's a great short version of that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I I wasn't trying to necessarily replow old ground, but I did um, I did want to address a couple of those things. And then some of those passages like the eunuchs and the Jonathan and David. But Jonathan and David isn't isn't a common um, academic theological argument. I think it's just a popular kind of social media buzz idea of just like oh but there's people in the bible and jonathan uh, david said that he preferred jonathan to the love of women so that means that they must have had you know this this homosexual relationship and all of that so i i just wanted to to give christians a way to think through some of these some of these questions that might just get thrown out you know in a tweet and then it's like enough to if they're really thinking about it they're like well I, you know i don't know i, I haven't been a while since i've read through first samuel and i don't remember all that 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 quote is there in in the bible so you know who am i to say you know but to kind of give christians permission to go back to the scriptures not that like they need my permission or who am i you know but yeah it's just like just don't don't neglect the scriptures in this and re- remember that this you know the gospel is the power of god into salvation and we don't have really we don't have any other weapon in our warfare to combat false ideologies and wrong ideas and wrong thinking, even in ourselves or in someone else. So we need to always be going back to the scriptures. So, you know, when actually in an earlier draft of this, I didn't have as full a treatment of, of the biblical issues because I felt like it had been dealt with so well in some other places. And, uh, and one of the leaders here at AFA said, no, like if you write the book for any reason, make it about the Bible and and really deal in depth as much as you have space for it doesn't matter you know what what the page count turns out to be just just deal with this as fully as you can yeah yeah and then and uh and then the third chapter rethinking the church you talk about kind of the goal of of all of this 
I mean, we, we, we touched on this a little bit, but the goal of all of this is to normalize queerness in the church. Yeah. What is that? So, so talk about that a little bit. What, why, what's the end game here? Well, the ultimate end game is chapter five in creating LGBT activists and allies within the church. But the part of the way to, to do that is by starting to introduce things into the life of the church, church worship practices, language, and all of these other things that are supposed to, in certain ways, normalize and make it more acceptable to be gay and to identify as gay and to come out as gay. But then not not just that, but then to celebrate aspects of that and to to highlight that, you know, so I mean, we just I guess yesterday was National Coming Out Day. And, um, you know, so having having events that highlight coming out of the closet or, uh, you know, transgender, you know, renaming day, you know, and things like that that are intended to um, put people in positions where they because it's fundamentally, I, I think, fueled by two sociological ideas, that of representation and visibility. And mm-hmm. those are those are ideas that particularly get deployed uh, when we're talking about media. You know, so like, you know, as anyone who is paying attention to to current popular media, I mean, you can't you can't pull up, a you know, Netflix or even Disney Plus or something and not see uh, some some new take that is supposed to represent, you know, a quote unquote marginalized group within mm-hmm. this within this, these media depictions and LGBT as sexual minorities is supposed to be, you know, one of these groups that has fuller representation and by the representation in these public platforms, then it creates the visibility for other people to see and identify with that. If they, if they feel that that expresses who they are at their truest self, but then also for those who would be opposed to it, once they start to see it, then it, it, it softens them and makes them more agreeable towards it because, Oh, somebody that I like on TV does this, you know, well, Will and Grace was such a funny show, you know, so I always talk about this. Yeah. (laughs) They're so funny. How could this be wrong? Like it's hilarious. And they're so nice. Yeah. And and that's, I mean, that that was a real thing. And that was a, you know, there was even an editor of um, entertainment weekly uh, on Twitter about a year ago, talking about um, part of the ways that uh, Hollywood producers were, we're trying to introduce these ideas in kind of subtle forms at the time, you know, and he was talking to the younger audiences now about how they might not appreciate the fact that, you know, the gay best friend or the the person in the background or whatever mm. were these kind of soft forms of representation that were leading to, you know, the full on uh, Ellen DeGeneres on her show mm. and then the will and grace and then, you know, so on and so forth. Once you've, open those floodgates, then you kind of have to keep that fire going because there's some aspect then of gay identity that hasn't been expressed that then you have to then, you know, have something that represents that. And so, you know, once you start dividing along ideological or uh, identity lines, and then it just kind of diffuses through all the fragmentation of different identity possibilities that are out there, because it's like, well, there's not enough, um, you know, LGBT people of color then being represented in this particular facet. And then, so then it just kind of expands from that. So that, that sociological idea is at play within churches. And Mm -hmm. so when it comes down to ordination 
and um, how churches speak publicly about this, their public policies about allowing uh, gay marriage or gay gay weddings and conducting those um, policies about being warm, uh, welcoming and affirming and the kind of language that they're supposed to use. All of this is intended to help, you know, foster that sense of greater representation and visibility. Yeah. And, and it's, it's, very very disturbing because even even very conservative traditionally conservative evangelical churches are buying into all all of this and some are going even so far as to affirm homosexual behavior uh like big big very big evangelical churches and uh so it's you know when i go speak at churches uh around the country i'm i'm often you know kind of surprised at how i mean the i get you know so many people i talk to so many people afterwards and i'm surprised at you know the the average kind of christian in the pew how they're completely in indoctrinated into this kind of ideology yeah and and it's massive it's going it's just spreading like wildfire in the church right because it, if you can't get the pastors and the leaders you can go after particularly first the parents of of people uh, of children who identify as lgbt mm-hmm. and then from there you can go after those who are connected to those and then from the, there you can kind of if you can't get the parents then you can get the kids and it kind of just it it kind of just feeds down the line and so somebody somewhere is being impacted by this you know uh, i think one of the the statements made by one of the producers on the ellen show was that if they could get one child in middle America to, you know, identify to to see themselves as as gay or lesbian, then they've done their job with the with the Ellen show. And so that kind of tells you part of the the mindset behind the the overall push toward representation and visibility. Um, yeah, I, I I was in J.P. Moreland's uh, cla- apologetics class in seminary, and he he said something one day that was funny. This is in 2017 but he said you know in hollywood they don't you know spend 200 million dollars and hand out pamphlets and talk about you know the ideology they make movies and tv shows and tell stories because storytelling i always i say this all the time storytelling is the most persuasive tool you can use to change people's minds hearts you can change an entire generation and and I talk about this is why I do this show. It's like mm-hmm. we we don't live in a vacuum. We're we're being constant. We're constantly imbibing the the, the lies of the culture. The, right. We're constantly imbibing TV shows and movies with LGBTQ whatever characters. And and so of course, why wouldn't we think? It's like thirty years ago. 40 years ago, nobody in the church, this isn't, it wasn't even a discussion really in the church, but now right. it's, it's like, oh, well, I, you know, it, we should be gay affirming or we should be, you know, whatever. And it's like, well, why do you think that's happened? Do you yeah. think that the culture has influenced you or are you oblivious to that? Like, it's right. just bizarre to me. Yeah. I mean, we're, we're being discipled in some way, you know, we're either being discipled in the, in the truth by the scripture and Christian teaching, Christian worldview and all that, or we're being discipled by the world. 
And yeah. we don't think of it in terms of discipleship. We just think of it in terms of entertainment or what you like, or this is funny or whatever, but it, it, it is all shaping the way that you think about things and the way that you respond to the world and even the way that you respond to God and the way that you think about God. And so it's always, you know, one of those things where, you know, people kind of react when Christians have, um, you know, especially now kind of the culture war mentality, people don't like the culture war, like they don't like that kind of, you know, posture toward, toward things. But, you know, part of the, the emphasis behind that, and I can speak as someone who works with a, an organization who's participated in the culture war. I mean, you know, AFA was kind of founded to, to highlight, you know, the decline of morals within, within television and things like that. And it's expanded and dealt with some other things over the years, but you know, the, the response of people was like, well, you know, you can just turn it off or you, you don't have to do that, but why do you have to affect the way that I, I deal with it? And it's like, no, I mean, part of it is to think about if we're Christians, then shouldn't we think Christianly about the things that we're interacting with? It's not to, to set up a list of legalistic rules of you can watch this and you can't watch that or whatever, but it is a question of how what are we watching, you know, and how mindful yeah. are we of the influence that that has on us and not just in terms of sex and violence and, and language and things like that, but also in terms of the worldview that's being presented and the attitudes and expressions that are there and the way that certain ideas are normalized, you know, I mean, little mermaid, you know, is a, the, the daughter has a terrible, you know, relationship with her father and her, her response to it is one of, you know, basically feminist, like, let me rise up against my father kind of thing, mm -hmm. you know? And so like, I, I have young girls, we're careful with even some of the, the Disney, you know, quote unquote, safe entertainment that we would allow them to, yeah. to encounter until they have a little more clear picture of how to even interact with that as, as Christians, you know? Yeah. And um, I, it's funny because Dick, I said, I've said this before, but Dick Lucas, the pastor, the British pastor, who's, I think I love him so much, but he's a, uh, he's a friend, but he's like 97, 98 years old. But he okay. once said, you're either get, we're either giving into the pressure of the word or the pressure of the world. <laughs> and, and that's true. It's like, mm -hmm. we're, we're, I always say this, we're never neutral. We're either just giving, we're being shaped by the world or by the word. And so yeah. the more we're in the word of God, the Bible, the more we're going to be shaped by that. And our thinking yeah. is going to be shaped by that. Yeah. And so, um, and you talk about in the book, this is what's interesting. What, talk about where, cause this is a, um, I talk, I've mentioned this before on the show that the, the term homophobia is an epithet to, to kind of make it seem like you're somehow irrational if you don't mm -hmm. affirm homosexual behavior. And it's like, it's, it's the same thing as like fear of heights or fear of spiders or, like you're, you're just, you're, irra it's irrational. It's like, no, actually, yeah. I actually have a worldview and a belief system that's very rational and biblical, but where did this term come from? Yeah. The, the word homophobia was coined by a psychologist in the, in the early 1970s to try and describe, uh, I guess a phenomenon that he found of, of men who feared becoming homosexuals or feared being around homosexuals for, for whatever reason. And so you know, he, he kind of developed, it wasn't like it was, um, you know, apolitical in his, in his uh, definition of it, but it was intended as a psychological description marker. But then almost immediately activists picked up on that and realized, wait, we have a way of defining in the same way that you can talk about 
um, you know, ethnic partiality and define it as racism and, uh, you know, racial animus and that kind of thing, you can define it as racism. Well, now we have a category that we can define the oppression that we feel like we're receiving as unique, um, you know, sexual minorities, even though that that term didn't exist at that point. But um, so that's where homophobia kind of became this political, um, you know, uh, epithet where you can just basically speak that against someone and say that, well, you're just homophobic or you're just uh, a bigot. And so therefore, you know, and oftentimes it doesn't even mean, you know, fear, but it is supposed to have, like you said, that irrationality mm-hmm. part of it. And mm-hmm. because it's supposed to place it at, at somewhere in the in the human psyche of just like this averse reaction, we're like, ah, I don't like that or, or, or I'm I'm afraid of that, um, even though um, there there are others who have kind of recognized, well, they don't it's not really a description of of Christian response to homosexuality at this point. But so they've tried to, con, you know, concoct other terms like heterosexist or things like that. Um, that are supposed to say that you are you're just a heterosexist because you believe that heterosexuality is normal and good and um mm-hmm. you believe that homosexuality is bad and wrong and so you know therefore you know we attack you but homophobia yeah. continues to be the popular term that's used and i just wanted to try and help christians realize like look you just just take when people call you that like you can't you can't really explain it away because it's not it's not a term that they can even justify against you because there's really nothing to it. It's just this, this feeling, you know, this, this outburst, you know, that they're, Mm -hmm. that they're displaying that, um, you know, it's embodied in that word, but it's not, it's not really something you can even defend against because you can't, you're never going to be, you know, unhomophobic enough to just to make them feel like they're, they can't, they can't attack you, you know, because you have to be fully embracing and celebratory you know, you have to go even further if you identify as a Christian where you have to you have to be fully celebratory, where you can't just say, well, you know, we just love all people. Well, that's not enough. You know, you have to fully embrace and you have to, you know, do all, all of these other hoops that you have to jump through because of your identification with something that is seen to be fundamentally homophobic. And mm-hmm. that's that's kind of the the danger there. When when Christians start to react against that term. I think it starts to set us in a wrong trajectory because we're reacting against the term thinking that there's something that we've done that was wrong when really it may just be the thing that you actually spoke clearly about this and you actually understand the thing. And then what, what is being hated is the light that you are showing. Yeah. Not, um, not that you are being abrasive or, you know, harmful or, or, you know, or impatient or any things. I mean, you know, obviously Christians can can give wrong responses in these situations. And I'm not justifying that, but I am saying that overall, like the way that that term is deployed is in a way to basically create a weapon against Christians in the church. Yeah. And of course, Jesus said, they're going to hate you because they hated me first. And he said, blessed are those who are persecuted for my namesake. So, you know, we're in good company. Uh, And Jesus, Jesus was clear about that. And, you know, it's like when people, people don't really call me homophobic because they, (laughs) They know where I, they know that I lived in the darkness for, yeah. for many, many years. And it's like, you know, I, uh, you know, the jig is up. Like I, 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 I saw, I saw, you know, I was there. I know what it's all about and it's bondage. It's mm-hmm. total, total mm-hmm. bondage. And I'm in, I, I'm free now in Christ. So uh, you can't call me homophobic. Sorry. 
And you talk about, <clears throat> this is interesting to me because I think early on when I was, I mean, these, these terms are, are difficult to, to really kind of understand what to use, what not to use. When I was a new Christian, I, I probably would have just described if someone had asked me or when I gave talks somewhere, people would say, are you still same sex attracted? And I would mm-hmm. say, yes. Mm-hmm. But you talk about this in the book and you say, you know, what that same the, the term same sex attraction is problematic and that there's a better I think I think the better term for it is homosexual temptation. Can you mm-hmm. kind of break this down? Yeah, well, once you're st- you're talking about same sex attracted, you're talking about kind of a fundamental state, you know, of being. Um, whereas, you know, uh, when you're talking about homosexual temptation, now you're defining something that is tempting you, you know, and and even even if temptation can sometimes rise out from us, you know, because of our fallen nature, there's still kind of a, there's a the there's a demarcation that's happened there that I feel like is is important for Christians when they're talking about this, because, you know, God did, because it, it does come back to that question of ontology, right? The, the question of essence, how did God make you? Did God make you fundamentally as a homosexual or did he not? Mm-hmm. And if he didn't, then what would be his intention for your sexuality? You know, that doesn't mean that he, he, uh, that you can't, you know, be single or that God doesn't intend that God intends for everyone to get married. And if you don't, that you failed or something. But the question is, you know, what would God's intention in that be? You know, if you're going to talk about your sexuality and you're going to define it in some way, then what would it be? So mm-hmm. that's that's why I, I push back even against the term same-sex attracted. I mean, it's better than saying gay Christian, you know, because it doesn't have all of the, the baggage. All of the, yeah, all the LGBT culture <clears throat> kind of associations with it. But still, you know, it, it does present kind of this I see myself essentially this way. And so defining yourself by the temptation rather than recognizing the temptation, because even the, even the guys within the, the side B gay celibate movement talk about the temptation being outside of them, but they can't say that if, if they're saying I'm fundamentally a homosexual, because you're saying basically every time I experience that temptation, it is coming out of me, but it's just the the sexual part. I can't, uh, you know, is the really bad part, but there's parts of that, uh, feeling that are fundamentally good and actually God intends for me to, uh, you know, go forward in that. So, yeah. Um, yeah, I just, yeah, I find these, it's, I, I find that, uh, it's Rosaria Butterfield when she was on the show, mm-hmm. she talked about, um, it's, it's funny cause it's like when now she gave me really good advice. Now, when people ask me, do you still struggle with same sex attraction? My what she told me to say basically is not answer the question, but ask them the question, just just like Jesus does in the Gospels. But ask ask them the question: Well, do you still struggle with indwelling sin? Do you still struggle with temptation? Um, so yeah. you know, at, bef- until we to re until we reach glory, we we're all going to struggle with temptation in one form or another. So I like that distinction of temptation versus same-sex attraction. Yeah, I think it's helpful. And even when you're talking about besetting sin, you know, I mean, besetting sins are, are, you know, there's aspects of them that are, that come out from us, but they're also things that have been put there by our continual patterns of behavior. 
mm-hmm. and ways that we continue to respond and think about things. You know, it's like ruts in the driveway where, you know, if you, it, it takes, it takes one, one, you know, misstep for me to, to back out of my driveway into the yard and then create a rut, but it takes a long time to patch out that rut and to, to even up the ground again, you know, and, and besetting sins are kind of that way. They're these ruts where our, we we keep going back to them and we've gone back to them several times and we've created these, these spots where we just kind of tend to be, but like, but does God intend for your besetting sin to always be the quote unquote thorn in the flesh that he won't remove? You know, mm-hmm. does he not intend for you to, to walk in freedom and victory and to overcome and to have those desires and temptations diminished and to where the temptation doesn't even tempt you in the same way that it used to. I yeah, mean, right. surely yeah. you would say that you're not when temptation comes, it doesn't come in the same way that it did as a young believer or even as a, you know, yeah. three years into the Christian life. And and so, you know, so that's I think that's what I would say about besetting sin. And then um, the last the kind of the chapter four, you, you talk about rethinking identity um, and talk about because you, you you get into freud you get into alfred kinsey um talk about kinsey and his impact on this uh this identity kind of for, talk about maybe freud for a second but and also kinsey and and how their ideas <laughs> have made had major still are reverberating today and have major consequences and um and how it affected kind of our thinking on this this issue yeah so the the question of freud i mean his his whole view the more that i read of freud the more confused i became as i tried to understand how he was even thinking about the questions of of sexuality um but overall part of the issue is that um uh, just just uh identifying you know thinking thinking in terms i guess of um uh, where do we where do we get this idea of sexual orientation from and and how do we start to define these these inner feelings and things you know when you come to kinsey it's interesting because he defines these things purely in terms of behavior and it's funny beckett you know even when people talk about the kinsey scale and they want to say well i identify as a 6 on the kinsey scale you know the kinsey scale is only referring to behavior it's not referring to feelings uh, it's not referring to I feel attracted or oriented this way. It means that all of your experiences, uh, all of your sexual experiences were pr- predominant, were exclusively homosexual. And so that's what it's referring to. Mm-hmm. And so um, anyway, like just, you know, initially with the with the in Prussia, with trying to to remove the sodomy laws and those kinds of things. And so the invention of the term homosexuality to move away from sodomy as an action to move toward um, homosexuality as a, as an inner sensibility or feeling or orientation. And then, and then all through these different thinkers, different ones introduce different concepts, but it, it just kind of balloons out from there to where now we receive this, um, you know, in, in culture and society, we just get this idea of orientation handed to us. And we don't even realize some of the political roots, you know, behind it and the ways that even Kinsey, you know, was very, very focused on, um, you know, he acted like this, this dispassionate, objective observer of, of situations, but really he, 
he was very interested to see how these how his research would impact um the church how it would impact civic law and how it would impact um other aspects of society so all of those education being being a major component of that too so all of those things you know i think um you know that's why i I was just initially just trying to figure out where do we even get this idea of orientation from? And then as I began to unpack the research, it became more and more um, clear that like this would actually be helpful for people to to see some of the history behind it mm-hmm. because these terms don't exist as these, you know, morally neutral ideas that are just objectively introduced by scientists or, or theorists or whatever. There's always an agenda behind it. You know, when people talk about science, it's like, well, scientists are funded by people. And what what is their motivation behind it? It doesn't mean that all all science is, is um, you know, wrong or, or untrue, you know, but it, it does mean like we should we should be interested in kind of the, the roots and the ideological underpinnings, I guess, of a yeah. lot of these things. D- did that answer your question? Yeah, yeah, that did. The last thing I kind of want to um, address is you get into this in the book and, and I talk about this all the time and I talk about it in my book, but the idea of born this way, um, you know, where does, what, what, where does homosexual desire or temptation or uh, attraction come from? Well, um, temptation, I mean, the fact that we're fallen human beings, you know, first of all, and the fact that we're shaped by, all kinds of experiences that we have throughout our lives and things that, um, that impact us in deep ways that end up shaping other aspects of, of our behavior and actions. Um, you know, what's interesting is that there've been many, many attempts to try and define at a biological level, um, homosexual, homosexuality, I guess you could say, or orientation or, or try and find some kind of genetic cause that would determine patterns of sexual behavior. But all attempts to do so have been have been futile. They've never been able to find any kind of gay gene that was kind of in the 90s, the attempt. But even more recently, you know, I I cite a 2019 study that was part of the Human Genome Project that took, you know, 420,000 lines of data of unique individuals across the world and all kinds of different, you know, cultural situations to try and determine is there is there any determining factor that uh, that leads people towards certain patterns of sexual behavior? And there wasn't any, there, there wasn't any causative, uh, you know, way that they could, could find or interpret any of that data. So the idea is that we're, we're, we're shaped by experiences and then things happen, you know, temptation arises to us in all kinds of manner of ways. And, the way that we start to cultivate those patterns of desire within ourselves as we respond in agreement with the temptation that we receive, you know, I mean, that's kind of the besetting sin concept I was speaking about earlier, you know, is um, where you just kind of create these ruts through your, your ways of thinking, your response to it, your actions and and words, you know, start to create these, uh, these things. So I think, I think that's ultimately where homosexuality comes from in these in these different ways uh there is a spiritual component but you know yeah there is there is definitely a spiritual realm and uh i have i did a whole video on the spiritual realm of of this issue but uh yeah i mean i i talked about this all the time if the new york times had a headline today it said 
you know, scientist discovers gay gene, I would be like, so what? Like, yeah. we're all born in sin. And uh, as Robert Gagnon says, we're every human being is born with sinful impulses. That doesn't mean we are to act on those impulses. Right. And, and so whether it's genetic, whether it's hormonal and utero, whether it's environmental, it, it's it's all a moot. It's all a moot point. Mm-hmm. Because we're all, it's a, the the doctrine of total depravity. It's like we're we're every part of us is corrupted, including our sexuality, including our genetic coding. So it, it doesn't doesn't matter, right? <laughs> if there's a gay gene or not. Um, and so I guess my last question to you is where where do we go from here? Or what should we as as evangelical Christians or what as Christians, what should we be doing in terms of kind of pushing back on all of this ideology? Well, I think the first thing is to just be aware uh, of the danger that's out there, because I, I find more often than not, you know, that people are resistant to even the thought of it being a danger. Um, you know, Christians are, I mean, you know, the, mm-hmm. they, they think, well, you know, these are just, can't we just be nice or can't we, um, you know, be patient and loving and compassionate and all that, you know, and this, when you talk about the threat of gay Christianity, that isn't a call against compassion or patience or, or those kinds of things, but it is a call to recognize that, that these things are, are truly damaging and that there is a threat and that there is a spiritual threat ultimately, mm-hmm. you know, behind all of this and that there is there is an enemy in Satan who is after eternal souls and wants people to be locked in perpetual bondage and, and to just be utterly destroyed. And so as Christians, it is not loving or kind or compassionate for us to just sit back. Even when those things, those ideas are continually rolled out in society and normalized across our culture. You know, I mean, we find different ways to engage with that, but the, the idea is that, like it is a threat and it's a threat, you know, to, to Orthodox Christian faith. I mean, obviously the church will live on, you know, God preserves us ultimately, but we are called to maintain it. And we're, we are card, we are called to guard, um, you know, the good deposit that's been given to us. And mm-hmm. so when, when Christians kind of act like this is a secondary matter, or it doesn't really concern us or why, why, why do you get so political it's like, well, I, I don't really have a choice, really, because politics is the god of progressives, and those who are embracing this ideology and embracing kind of the progressive mm-hmm. underpinnings of it, you know, politics is their god. You know, the the power to shape society to conform to the will that they have for it is what they are worshiping and serving, and so like, there's there's no way to not address politics because you were you're trying to to tear down this false god that exists. Yeah. And so, you know, that's, I, I think Christians just need to see with the spiritual lens um, the things that are happening behind the surface of this, that it isn't just about um, being right. Obviously, you know, we're having the right theology or having the right definitions. The definitions all help us to offer care better in situations where we're one-on-one with somebody, but it also allows us to see the darkness for what it is and to oppose it with the same level of boldness and strength that the scripture calls for. Right. Well, we're going to leave it there. Where can people find this book, Dangerous Affirmation? 
the the book is exclusively available at dangerousaffirmation.net. And actually, if you go there and you type in the promo code Beckett, B-E-C-K-E-T, that's your name, it will uh, you'll generate free shipping. So you can you can get the book freely shipped to you at dangerousaffirmation.net. Use the promo code Beckett. Yeah, and we'll put the link down below and the code, the promo code. And guys, I, I highly recommend this book, Dangerous, Aff- Dangerous Affirmation, The Threat of Gay Christianity. Uh, it's a very important issue. It's a very important subject. And uh, for the, you know, for the sake of the church, we need to know what's going on behind the scenes and what's happening to the church, what's infiltrating the church. And so thank you, MD Perkins, for being on the show. Well, thank you. It was a pleasure to be with you. And thanks for the conversation. All right. Thank you, guys. We'll see you next week. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Beckett Cook Show. Your support makes this content possible. All episodes of The Beckett Cook Show are also available on YouTube. For more information about Beckett and his ministry, visit his website at beckettcook.com. Thank you to the team at Life Audio for their partnership with us. If you go to lifeaudio.com, you will find more faith-centered podcasts about prayer, Bible study, parenting, and more. Dedicating time each day to spend feeding our minds and our hearts the truth of God's Word is immensely helpful in our growth as followers of Christ. I'm John Stonge, and each day I host a show called Daily Devotions with Pastor John. On the show, I spend just a few minutes taking an applicational look at one or two verses of Scripture before coming to the Lord in prayer. If you'd like to make a habit of spending more time meditating on the truth of God's Word, You can listen to Daily Devotions with Pastor John at lifeaudio.com or on your favorite podcasting app.